I'm Thomas Schreiber, and on today's show, how Kevin Lee is building Emmy, the world's first low-carb, high-protein instant ramen. So we were bootstrapping and we were just like, okay, it's going to cost $5,000 to get enough inventory, mix it together ourselves in bags and try to ship it over there ourselves. And we waited a couple of weeks and then we get this call from this customs person and they're like, hey, you have an ingredient in here that is not allowed into Taiwan. And we were just like, oh my God, so can you send it back to us? And to get it back would have cost us more. And we were just like, okay, I think it's better to just like have you guys burn it. And that was the fastest $5,000 that has ever left our pockets. Traditionally, instant ramen is thought of as a guilty pleasure food with little to no nutritional value. It was something you ate in college but grew out of as you got older. The $42 billion industry is dominated by a few Asian conglomerates who've been selling the same instant ramen formula for nearly 60 years. Emmy has set out to challenge these legacy brands by reinventing instant ramen with significantly less sodium and carbs while adding 31 grams of protein, 9 grams of fiber, and 100% plant-based ingredients. Co-founder Kevin Lee worked at companies like Kabam, Funders Club, Product Manager HQ, and Pair VC before founding and launching Emmy earlier this year. He starts off by telling the story of how he met his co-founder, Kevin, or K-Chan for short, on a work trip in 2012. This is where Emmy begins. We didn't know each other. We were technically on the same team, but I had just joined and they sent us to Vancouver about two to three times a month. And on one of the first trips, we were both up there. Um, we had stayed in separate hotels. And for some reason, we both walked into the exact same ramen joint um, in the early morning. No one else was awake. It was like empty streets. And I forgot who got there first, but I remember we like we looked up and we were like, what are you doing here? Like, this is super random. And we ended up bonding just eating noodles and kind of got to know each other a little bit better. And uh, you know, it's funny, we discovered that despite working in the tech industry, we both came from food families. So my grandparents are, are farmers, produce farmers in Taiwan, and his grandmother sold noodles out of a hawker stall in Thailand. And his dad actually still is in the food industry, so ran a Thai supermarket in LA and then also ran a Thai restaurant selling noodles. So both our families, they've been in the food industry for a long time and they really immigrated here so that we wouldn't go into the food industry. And ironically, we, we just came back full circle to our roots. How did the idea start to come up? Who kind of brought that up initially? So I probably have skewed more towards the food and beverage interests. Um, I've always been very obsessed with studying like the old like molecular gastronomy. And I, I really love like the art and the science behind it. Um, K-Chan, oh, so we call each other K-Lee and K-Chan just because we're both named Kevin. So I, I append my last name Lee. He appends his last name, you know, it's actually very long. It's Chan Thasarpan, but we use Chan. <laughs> um, K-Chan has always been really obsessed with like health and nutrition. So for the past probably been a decade, he's been doing jujitsu. He studies health and nutrition. And I think both of us, you know, again, we wanted to combine our interests. Again, we, we both have interests in, in like health, nutrition and food and beverage, but it was really the past few years where, you know, as we've gotten older, our bodies have started breaking down. Our families have always had chronic health conditions, specifically diabetes and high blood pressure. So 
my grandmother is pre-diabetic. Um, she had a stroke from hypertension, so she's half paralyzed. And then both my parents take medication for high blood pressure. Um, and then Kay Chan's family has a history of diabetes, just kind of overweight. And both of us, we saw that and we said, well, look, there's, it kind of comes back to the food and the nutrition that they've eaten growing up. And they just didn't have that same level of education or nutrition that we did, especially growing up here in the States. And so that was really the impetus behind us starting to think a little bit more about the food and beverage industry. So you guys decide that you want to take this idea more seriously. You know, what were those next steps? Was there demand testing or did you guys just jump right in? It's funny because a lot of people ask like, how much research did you guys do before you guys picked instant ramen? And everyone expects that because we came from product management backgrounds, or I don't know what, what it is like more of a business background that, um, they think we did all this category analysis, this market analysis, but I distinctly remember K Chan came over to my place. Um, we sat down and we were like, Hey, you know, we both know we want to do food and beverage. Like, what should we work on? And then literally K Chan looked at me and he was like, dude, we should work on noodles because we both love noodles. And that's kind of how we bonded. And that really was like the founding, like, it's funny. That's like, that's the founding story, but arguably we did kind of back into it later, but we kind of started with this this theory that like, okay, well, noodles can be improved upon because most noodles are typically just like white carbs. It's just like wheat flour. Um, there's really no added nutrition. You know, when you eat a heavy bowl of noodles, you, you can, you'll feel pretty full and you'll probably get like that food coma that you normally would with, with any traditional white carb. And we, we started talking about how, you know, because diabetes was prevalent in our families, you know, was there a way to make a noodle low carb? And then from there, we started thinking about other ancillary health benefits like high protein, um, you know, higher fiber. Later on, we decided to go, you know, plant-based. Obviously, plant-based has to do with the seasoning packet because, of course, noodles are already plant-based. Um, but yeah, I think from there, we did then jump into a lot of demand testing. So fortunately, um, you know, some of our mentors are people in the food industry, uh, you know, at the time, um, I had really looked up to this guy named Justin Mares. Um, he is a former growth marketer in tech and him and his brother uh, moved to Austin and started a bone broth company called Kettle and Fire where, you know, they did do a lot of demand testing and uh, they really taught us to set up these unbounced landing pages. Um, at the time, there was a widget called Celery, which I think has since been sunsetted, but it allowed you to collect pre-orders directly on your landing page. And so my co-founder, before doing this, he was a lead product manager at Facebook. Um, he had some ad credits that I think he's allowed to use elsewhere. I, I don't want to go on record saying that. But anyways, we, we had a use of some credits that um, we were able to drive some traffic towards the landing pages um, and really just test, uh, you know, I, you could call it ROAS, but really we were just trying to see, hey, look, are people actually putting their credit card down and pre-ordering the product? And it was pretty astounding to see just so many people, um, you know, being willing to put down a credit card effectively let us hold their payment in escrow. Um, that's what Celery did. And then of course we would refund them, but as we refunded them, we would kind of shoot them an email and just be like, hey, just curious like why you were interested in this product. Um, and a lot of people would respond with all this qualitative feedback. Most of the people said, well, I was really interested in this low carb uh, value prop. Others said, why well, like the high protein? So there was an element of already starting to understand, hey, what were the core attributes of this 
fake products that we had kind of thrown up on a landing page um, that got people most excited. And there were definitely a handful of people who straight up just said, look, you know, it sounds like you don't have the product ready, but keep my money. Um, like I'm, I'll let you keep it until this product is ready. And to us, that's like a, oh my God, this is like hair on fire problem for these people that we didn't give them a timeline. We just said, hey, we don't have this product ready yet. And they were still like, just keep it until it's ready and then ship it to me. So I think it was a combination of like, um, we did these landing page tests. We knew there was demand, some sort of latent demand. And then from there, it was about how can we figure out who our core audiences are? And then how can we figure out what value props of the product we should focus on first? And that's where we set up another series of ad tests. Um, the first ad test was just like a broad kind of audience targeting. Um, I think it was pretty obvious that the low carb keto uh, general health and wellness audience was going to be interested. I think what was probably more surprising to us was we had written high protein and we kind of at the time had arbitrarily thrown out a number. I think at the time we thought like, oh, maybe 20 grams of protein was going to be a lot. And a lot of people, including us, thought, okay, maybe that's like a male-oriented audience. Maybe these like physical fitness could be bodybuilders. And what we discovered through our audience targeting was that 70 to 80% of the clicks or like people interested were females. And they were females between, uh, let's say, like 35 to 65. And obviously, there's probably some form of selection bias. Like maybe that's just an audience that lives a lot on Facebook as well. But I think it was through that plus like actually reaching out to these people doing qualitative interviews that we discovered, hey, actually, this is our target audience. And so we did that ad test. We also did another test where we took the winning audiences and we targeted the winning audiences with different sets of value props. Because at the in the early days, we thought, oh, everyone cares about gluten-free. Like that's such a big thing. And we just kind of came to realize that it's still a very small percentage of the population. Um, like the things that people care about the most ultimately came down to low carb, high protein. And, you know, plant-based was like a big one. I would say not that big at the time. Um, high fiber also was like, it's not something that most people know. So we were like, okay, low carb, high protein, good. It kind of fits with our thesis. Let's make sure we emphasize those. We don't need to be gluten-free right now. Um, so I highly recommend this because I do think a lot of founders, especially in the food and beverage space, will come in with this gut instinct of like, oh, I know that because industry trends are pointing this way, we should make this. But there's a very simple process you can do. It probably took us like three to four weeks to just run the full gamut of ad tests and get kind of comfortable with, it's not significance in any way, but just like, hey, we have enough data at this point to know that these are the attributes and these are the audiences we should be focusing on. Was it just you and K-Chan working on the marketing piece? Was there anyone else helping you with this demand testing? In the early days, it was just us. We Most of it was just us reading or like learning from other folks. Um, specifically, like Justin had done this before. He had actually written like a case study around this. We always say we're standing on the shoulders of giants because we kind of took his demand testing to the next level with like our audience slash value prop testing. Um, yeah, it was just us trying to figure this out. And, and admittedly, it was we're not like designers or anything. So on, with Unbounce, they were some of the ugliest landing pages you've probably ever seen. Uh, but, you know, it was enough just to get some signal. So at this point, you're ready to start product development. What were those first steps? Yeah, this is the funny part, because like most people trying to learn something for the first time, we went straight to YouTube, where we just like literally typed in YouTube, like how to make noodles, like just wanted to learn how to make noodles at all. Um, you know, I think over time, what happened was we 
there's nothing special about this process. Like we did what anyone, you know, with a smart head on their shoulders might do, which is, you know, again, it's like you do, you go to YouTube, you go on Amazon, you buy as many ingredients as you can, you follow the steps on YouTube and you just try to make any kind of noodle at all or any kind of first product. And then over time, we try to bring some sophistication to it. So K-Chan was, you know, he built like the spreadsheet where we had formulations listed with like weightings of each ingredients. And then we actually started finding like research papers online. Uh, some of them were in Chinese and Japanese, and we had to just use Google Translate to translate them and then try to like piece together the instructions. And then, you know, I think when you form a basic noodle, then you start to think, okay, well, what are the ingredients I can swap out that would allow it to be low carb or high protein? And I've said this on a few other podcasts before, but there were two big breakthroughs in the product development process, which is we were historically making probably like one formulation every hour. And it's just like, it's a very slow process. You've got to wait for like the dough to set and it's just no different than making pasta in a way. And we found this food science PhD who kind of came in and looked at our process. And he was just like, wait a second, guys, you guys are really overcomplicating this. Like every formulation, you guys seem to be tweaking like two to three variables instead of just one. Like how can you isolate what exactly is changing? And he just gave all these like interesting tips and tricks that improved our throughput. So it's kind of like a manufacturing floor. Like if you can improve your throughput, you're getting more products, you know, completed. And for us, it was kind of a big breakthrough because instead of one formulation per hour, we were suddenly doing like three to four formulations per hour. And so in a single day, you know, when you can churn out three to four X, the number of formulations, you, you just iterate so much faster. Um, the second thing that happened was we found this chef and the chef broadened our knowledge of ingredients that were available. So historically, we only knew Amazon. We were just like, okay, like who's Bob Red Mill is like this like popular supplier. We were like, well, whatever proteins they have, like that's kind of the limit. Like we don't know where else to find anything else. Or like we can go to the supermarket, we can Google stuff, but that's about it. Um, The chef was just like, look, here's 20 to 30 different ingredient suppliers. If you just email them and tell them you're a manufacturer, interested in formulating with their product, they'll ship you free samples of their products. And we were like this whole time because we were bootstrapping, we, we kind of just been like buying ingredients and like, we were like, okay, we can't buy too much of this because it's going to get pretty expensive. And we, and then all of a sudden the chef was like, he told us this fact and we were like, holy crap, you can get free samples. Like we didn't know this. And all of a sudden we had like every week, we just had like 20 to 30 different samples being shipped to us. And that just broadened the range of ingredients available to us. So that plus the throughput is really what sped up our product formulation process um, and got us to those you know, 200 iterations or so from our, from our own kitchens. At one point, K-Chan makes a, a pretty cool discovery uh, by accident. Yes. <laughs> you hear those stories about like famous penicillin or whatever that's like invented purely on accident. And that's quite literally what happened is I think back in the day we were trying like sunflower protein, which was actually like pretty fatty. It's kind of like oily and, and it was like working pretty well as a primary ingredient. And we flew to visit our food science PhD and chef advisors. And we were at this test kitchen with them. And we just realized that we had only brought like one bag of the sunflower protein. And after a few iterations, we completely ran out and we were like, Oh crap, we should have brought a lot more. It's too late to order off Amazon. And we were like, okay, well, let's call every single grocery in the area. And there was one natural grocery about 20 minutes away that said they had some in stock. So we drove over there. And then we realized that the guy who had picked up the phone had completely, like he'd made a huge mistake. There was no sunflower protein whatsoever. And so we started walking around this nuts and like the nuts area. We were about to give up. And then K-Chan's like about to walk out and his leg basically bumps into this 
it's a jar or something of pumpkin seed protein, which is now one of our primary ingredients. And we were just like, you know what? Screw it. Let's just try it. It's the only protein available in here. And we like, we opened it. It was like green. It had like a nutty smell. And we were like, oh, this is going to be interesting. And for some reason or another, like it just worked within our formulation. And it was, I remember we all celebrated pretty hard that night because we created this noodle. We were like, holy crap, it tastes really good. Um, that actually was an early formulation still. So that was probably like maybe sub 75 so we thought we had figured it out. It ended up being like 125 more, but it was still a breakthrough for us. Um, and it was completely on accident. So I wish I could tell you we had done a bunch of research and like, but you know, it ended up being our core ingredient and it just has a good number of health benefits too. And so it's pretty nice to, to keep. So throughout this, this entire journey of you guys developing the product, uh, you have an opportunity to have an industry expert test the product uh, in a pretty casual environment. Um, and this person ends up actually investing in Emmy. Yeah, this is a really funny story. Um, I think after we had gone to a pretty comfortable place with at least just like a, a first version of the product, one of my friends sends me a text one day and he's just like, hey, I know this Japanese CEO person who's like coming from Japan and he's actually just interested in meeting American food startups. So if you have any time tomorrow, would you want to like let them taste your product and just, you know, try it out? And he said it so casually that, that I was just like, oh yeah, sure. Like Japanese CEO, like we should, we should definitely get an expert like who grew up eating this stuff, like trying our product. So we didn't think much of it. Kitchen and I kind of just like did our work. And then I started Googling this guy and he's the CEO of this Japanese food conglomerate. Um, they basically have been around since I think 2010 and which doesn't sound like a long time, but really like that was a time where they started pioneering this concept of shipping fresh produce straight from farmers. Um, they work with thousands of farmers in like the Asian regions and they source fresh produce directly into people's homes. So in a way they were the first, you know, like combination of blue apron or imperfect produce, but back in 2010 before it was a, or I don't even know if I'm getting it right. It could be like 2000, maybe I apologize if I'm getting it wrong. Um, but they've been doing this for a long time and they were huge. They, they basically ship to like almost every single Japanese like citizen. And anyways, I, I won't go into it too much, but it's a conglomerate. They have like a couple of divisions. So this is just one division. And I remember like telling Keisha and I was like, oh my God, like this guy is way bigger than I thought he was. We need to prepare and we need to like put together, like we need to prepare samples tonight and make sure they're ready by tomorrow morning. We need to like prepare a pitch in case we need, like we should probably pitch this guy. And so we met up at like 5 a.m. at my place the next day because at the time when we were still rolling these noodles, it still takes quite some time because, again, you have to wait like an hour to let the dough settle and everything. So we prepared a sample. We like had these little cups. We put water in like a thermos. It was the most bootstrapped thing you could see. We brought my own silverware, like forks and spoons in like plastic bags. And then we put like some seasoning that we just made ourselves into like these little containers. So it was a pretty janky setup, honestly. And I would be concerned if I were him and this guy like took out this like plastic bag with all this stuff. But we actually met him at the Westfield Mall of all places. It was like, um, sorry, that's a place in San Francisco. It's just a mall. And the upstairs floor, I think it's like the fourth floor, it's called the Dome. They just have a bunch of open tables. This was obviously pre-COVID. And he had brought his partner who was his head of venture we didn't know at the time and the four of us just sat down we like let him taste the noodles we were like super worried 
Um, and then we kind of gave him this pitch and like at the end, he just kind of smiled and he looked at us and he was like, oh, I want to hear about your like vision and your mission. And we told him about how like we, you know, started this company because of our families and we're really here, you know, we want to enrich the health of lives around the world. And that's really like a core thesis behind his company too. And so I, I remember after that, like Kitchen and I were just like relieved and we went home. And then I think the next week, his head of venture and like someone else on his team emailed us and they were just like, that was the CEO. Um, he really likes you guys. Normally we would have to do a bunch of diligence since you guys would be the first US investment we'd ever make. But he just has like a gut feeling about you guys and he wants to like put in a check. And we were just like, oh my God, that was crazy. That was like, that was totally unexpected. Um, it was, you know, this guy's been eating ramen his entire life. He's all about like healthy eating in Japan, pioneering the concept of it. And it was just an incredible first experience. So that was really cool. And we wrote a blog article about it on our website if anyone's interested. <laughs> Throughout the the product testing, um, you're obviously giving it to friends and family and having them try it. Um, were there any larger scale opportunities to test the product? Yeah, we did do a number of tastings. Um, there was actually a kitchen in San Francisco called Tinker Kitchen, and they set up a large scale. They brought in like 100 people. They were just strangers who um, kind of knew they were coming in to do taste tests with a number of different food companies. And we had put together a survey of quantitative and qualitative questions on, you know, and participants would just walk through each of the stations, try the product. It was a blind tasting. So you had to put a traditional competitor against yours and they didn't know which one was which. And so then they would have to rate both of them on their phones. And again, some people will thought like they might think that the traditional one is yours. They have no idea. And uh, yeah, we, we uh, it was pretty cool actually, because at the end we ended up revealing our product, like what our product attributes were. Uh, we were like, hey, this is the world's first low-carb, high-protein instant ramen. Um, and pe- there were like a couple of shrieks. Like we heard people screaming. Like, sh- I-, I don't know why I call it shrieks because that's literally what it was. <laughs> it was, And it was like fascinating because we were like, oh, that's that seemed like a positive signal. Now, it-, it wasn't shrieking in a negative way. It was like, oh, wow, that's cool. And then the best signal was when people walked up to us and they said, hey, is this on market already? Where can I buy this? And to me, that's like a very positive signal because... Sometimes friends will tell you like, oh, this is great. It's like the mom test. Your mom's always going to tell you everything's amazing. But if you ask them to whip out their wallet and they're hesitant, that's when you know they don't really care. So these are people who are like ready to whip out their wallets. And that gave us a lot more confidence to kind of keep going. So I think the startup journey is all just about these small wins that kind of keep you going and and keep you motivated. And you guys got a a lot of those small wins here and there. And uh, you get to a point where you're ready to start to manufacture it. Um, this is when COVID is basically setting in now. You know, what was that process of trying to find a manufacturer uh, here in the U.S. or overseas? Yeah, it was incredibly painful. Um, we initially actually tried to go overseas. And the first time we tried to do this, we actually tried to go to my home country, which is Taiwan. And it was a lot of brute force. Like we just kind of cold called, cold emailed found one that was like open to working with us. And I remember the time, so we were bootstrapping and both Kitchen and I were like, okay, it's going to cost $5,000 to get enough inventory. And like, we had to like mix it together ourselves in bags, go through all this like customs documentation and try to ship it over there ourselves and pray that it got to their factory so they could do a trial run. And we waited like a couple of weeks and then we get this call from this like customs person. And they're like, hey, 
you have an ingredient in here that is not allowed into Taiwan based on like their FDA regulations. And we were just like, oh my God, so can you send it back to us? And they were like, well, we got to hold it here. It ended up being to a point where to get it back would have cost us more. I don't think it was more than the original shipment, but like way more than we expected. And we were just like, okay, I think it's better to just like have you guys burn it. And that was like the fastest $5,000 that has ever left our pockets. So, you know, that happened, that really scarred us. And then COVID happened and we were just like, oh my God, like this is going to be really difficult. And luckily we were able to find a manufacturer in the U.S. who was willing to work with us. And that's a whole nother crazy story of just convincing them to work with us because they rejected us two times. And luckily through like a Twitter connection who had worked with someone at the company who ended up being a very prominent family member who like was basically an owner in the company, uh, we were able to get in and convince them to work with us. But there is no magic formula, unfortunately. Unlike tech, where there's marketplaces for just about everything, there is no marketplace for manufacturers, and they live off of information asymmetry. So you just have to pretend to be much bigger than you really are. So we showed up in suits to the meetings. We uh, pretended like we had teams back home doing things, and it was just us two uh, mixing the flour in our kitchens and running to the UPS. Yeah, it's a lot of fun times, a lot of fun memories, but very painful at the same time. And there's a there's a struggle in terms of you know there's the difference between making the noodle uh, in the instant ramen in your house versus trying to manufacture it. Um, how did you guys you know get that process down uh, so it could be distributed? You know, rightfully, um, I, I think a lot of our mentors told us in the early days stop formulating in your own kitchens as soon as possible and just go find a manufacturer because manufacturers have these large scale commercial equipment and production lines that they have to run day in, day out. And time not spent running these lines is an opportunity cost for them. They're losing money. So as a manufacturer, their incentive is to not change anything about their process because changing, like tweaking the machines, how they run, again, it's just cost coming you know, out of their pockets. So even something as small as like, okay, we have dough and we throw it in the air for five seconds, like if I'm making pizza, if a manufacturer can only throw it in the air for three seconds, they're not going to change their process for you. This is obviously hypothetical, but maybe that totally screws up your formulation. So for us, it was kind of this unfortunate fact where we got started with this manufacturer and we were like, hey, we already have, you know, we did 200 iterations. We have this, you know, version 200 that's ready to go. You could just plug it into your machines. Let's go. And they were like, uh, hold up. Nope, that's not how this works. Uh, you know, we need to go through R&D and then you know, we need to make sure that we can tweak your formulation to fit our machines and our manufacturing processes. And that ended up being like an eight month process. It was way longer than we thought. We basically had to make all these sacrifices along the way. We had to make our noodle shelf stable and they had to add like a, a natural preservative that, you know, it was the only like non-artificial preservative we could find and it's naturally occurring, but it just imparts certain undesirable qualities. So we're very upfront with our audience that, you know, the texture is rough. It's like coarser than a traditional ramen noodle. It's a little bit more like a soba noodle. And then some people can taste a light tartness in the aftertaste of the noodle because of that natural preservative to keep it shelf stable. And again, these are things that we just had to deal with because these were manufacturing constraints, but they're not optimal. And they're obviously not what we would want in the final product, but it goes back to um, the Reed Hoffman quote of, if you're not embarrassed by the first product you've launched, you've launched too late. So for us, it was critical to get into market, get some data while in parallel, continue improving the product on the back end. So, uh, you know, we have improved versions coming out later this year, but yeah, it's never going to be perfect starting out. 
you and K-Chan do about 24 months of product development. The next step is branding. But first, how did you guys come up with the name? Yeah, Emmy is interesting. It, it's a, um, so me actually means noodle in a lot of Southeast Asian languages. And so at the time we were like, okay, well, we want a simple, recognizable name. Um, four letters is, would be pretty awesome. And we thought, okay, well, me means noodle. And if we flip it inside out, you kind of get Emmy. And basically what we were doing is like flipping a noodle inside out um, by reinventing it. So we kind of came to Emmy and, and it stuck. And also the trademark was available, which is, it's funny how in food and beverage, trademarking is incredibly important because it's an industry that litigates pretty heavily, more so than I'd say like tech or any other industries. So we started with Emmy and then from a branding perspective, we actually knew that, you know, because Cajun and I don't come from branding backgrounds, uh, we wanted to work with an agency that had a lot of expertise in the food and beverage space. And so we ended up working with one called Gander. Um, they basically did Bonza, Magic Spoon, um, a few big brands in the food and beverage space. And we heard really great things about the two co-founders, Mike and Katie. And so ended up pitching them and uh, you know, they're very picky with their clients. And I think they're very mission driven too. I think for them, they really care about better for you products. So that that's kind of how we started the process with them. You mentioned earlier, the this is V1 and V2 will be coming out later this year. How did you guys balance, you know, wanting to make the the perfect product initially versus, you know, just launching and, and then iterating? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So one thing we haven't touched upon yet is in the early days, as we were building this company, we were simultaneously building a beta community uh, on Facebook. And I think after we realized that the majority of our interested audience were, it was technically 25 to 65, but more skewed 35 to 65 uh, females. And we know that that's an audience that does happen to just live on Facebook. And we kind of figured this out just because back in our mobile gaming days, this was kind of data we already knew. And so we said, okay, well, Facebook, private group, this is probably the way to build a beta community. And it's going to be much more engaged than just getting people on an email list and occasionally sending them emails. So we built up this beta community. And as we got closer to, you know, thinking about a V1.0 launch, we created a survey and an application effectively. And we found 150 people, stranger, not strange, I guess they were strangers, but they were members of our community. So kind of strangers who were interested in trying the product. And we said, look, this is, it's not gonna be pretty. We're literally gonna send you Ziploc bags of noodles with seasoning. And we will ask that you fill out this quantitative and qualitative survey afterwards. And not all the 150 people ended up responding. It was probably more like 80 people responded, but it actually gave us pretty good signal where we saw that something like 65 to 70% of the people were giving reviews on the overall product that was five star out of seven or higher. And of course, we obviously had other questions that were more detailed, but that was kind of the broad level like, okay, well, is this a positive or negative indication that people like or dislike the product? I think that gave us a signal to say, okay, look, it's not perfect. You know, ideally you want to be probably like 85 to 90% people love the product for, you know, product market fit, quote unquote. But that's good enough right now because we just, again, we want to launch, we want to get to market we want to learn from customers and start building the brand um, so that as we launch V2.0 later, people are already kind of primed for it. I think what we've found is that, you know, now that we are in market, we've learned a bunch of really interesting things, right? So for example, we've learned that 
some of our members, maybe they don't like our specific cooking instructions. Well, some of them will actually come back and be like, hey, have you tried this method? Or some people have been like, look, I actually really love it when I stir fry the noodles. And these are really interesting data points that you just wouldn't know because oftentimes as founders, you're kind of holed up, you're pigeonholing, you don't think about certain things. And you just get really interesting tidbits of data that really will inform how you think about the product going forward. Um, another thing we discovered was, hey, most people, they like the idea of low carb, but if you're not in a low carb or keto demographic, everyone else is kind of just like, oh, well, as long as it's generally healthier, I'll feel good about it. And that healthier, quote unquote, is, is a very broad range of definitions. So at the time, like we were so adamant that our noodles had to be nine grams of net carbs or lower, basically anything that was 10 grams or lower. And we kind of realized after launching that most people don't care that much. Like if you look at a traditional instant ramen brand now, they're at like 40 to 80 grams of net carbs. So we're already significantly lower than that. And I think we just killed ourselves like trying to get to nine grams of net carbs where once we launched, we're like, wait a second, people seem like they're comfortable going up to like 12 or 15 and it's still better than the norm. Um, but if we had known that, then maybe we could have dramatically improved the taste and texture profile a little bit earlier on. Because again, these were like, we did actually survey our beta community. And so we did kind of come to this conclusion, hey, we should aim for nine. But I think when you go to a broad audience of like nationwide and you get all this feedback, you start to realize, oh, actually it's not that big of a deal. From 2014 to 2019, you ran and founded Product Manager HQ, which is an education media company for product managers. How are you and Kevin you know, thinking about building community going forward with Emmy? You've got this great beta community uh, initially before launch, but the next six to 12 months or even the next couple of years, what is that community uh, going to look like ideally? So for us, like even our beta community, uh, it's since been renamed to just private community. It's no longer a beta. Um, in the first year of running that, it was always us posting to them. So you know, call it a community or call it an audience. It's kind of tricky. Like some people say an audience is like, it's a one-way direction. And then the community is where members can actually interact with each other. And this beta community, people can interact with each other, but it's primarily through the comments. So like either I or K-Chan are the ones doing all the posts. We actually didn't open up for posting because we weren't sure how to moderate. And we wanted to make sure it was like us presenting information and behind the scenes to our audience. Now, uh, for example, like actually recently we started opening it up. So we're, we're running an experiment where now anyone can make their own posts. And we want to do this because we want to get people to start um, getting into the habit of like, hey, it's it's no longer just the Kevins. It's like, hey, we're all part of Emmy now. And maybe I want to make like a post of a, a bowl of Emmy with my own toppings. And I'd love to hear thoughts on how other people have have topped their bowls. And so, uh, you know, it's it's a kind of a nascent experiment, but this is really where true community starts forming because people will then not only post, but they'll probably start to like sub segment into their own groups where they'll be like, Hey, this is like, this is the recipe group where we're all just going to share like our favorite recipes. And then this is the health group where we're only going to talk about like the macronutritionals of each of the recipes we've created. And it's pretty cool because as you see, like even before when it was only us posting and people were in the comments, people would still post photos of their bowls and we would actually message them and say, Hey, are you comfortable with us turning this into like a recipe blog post on our website? Or are you comfortable with us sharing this on our social channels so that other people can learn more use cases of how they would eat Emmy? We would put it in our email newsletters and our email campaigns going out to our subscriber base. So it's obviously in the early days, but I think this is where the magic of community really lies is 
you get a bunch of UGC content, you can identify the VIPs. There's literally people within our community are so fervent about IMI that they will go into our Facebook ad comments and debate with people. Because like our product right now is pretty expensive. Um, we just had to price that way because we don't have economies of scale. But there are people who will go into, there's a, there's a couple of people who will be like, hey, this looks really expensive. And then our community members will say, look, I followed the Kevins for the past year. These guys are super dedicated. Like here's all the things that they've done to bring down the price over time. Here's their promise to us. And it's really cool. It's cool to have these evangelists who are like fighting on your behalf because they've, they know who you are and they've kind of watched you over, you know, over a long period of time. And I think that's really a huge, huge benefit of having a community like this. Outside of that community, what has been the initial response since you guys launched? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because again, like we knew that V1.0 was not perfect in any regards, like especially as founders who are incredibly critical Every founder is going to be critical of your own product. I would say because me and Keichen grew up eating instant ramen, we are especially critical of this product where we're like, look, the manufacturing constraints, they did hit us pretty hard. Um, I would not give this product like an A plus at all right now. And so I think the general consensus is like, it's probably like a 50-50 split, honestly, of, hey, if you're not a low carb keto or carb restricted dieter right now, and you're just like thinking that this is going to taste exactly like traditional instant ramen, you're, you're going to be disappointed because it, the texture is different. The taste is going to be a little bit different, but at least the macronutritionals are like significantly improved and way above what, what other traditional brands are. So there are people in this like low carb keto carb restricted audience who are just like love Emmy. And then there's everyone else who's like, maybe you're just like a little bit health and wellness oriented. Maybe you're someone who grew up eating instant ramen in college or like as a kid. And those people are furious. They're just like, how can you guys come out and call this ramen? And at first, each one of these like emails we got, it just like stabbed me in the heart. It was like they were twisting the knife and it, it sucks to hear that because you never, you know, you have your own standards as a founder. And truth be told is like, at this time, you feel like this company is your identity. You feel like this product is your identity. And so you feel like people are judging your standards based on this V1. And you have to be able to withstand that pressure and not let it damage your mental health over time. I spent a lot of time crafting really long responses to people where I'm like, look, I totally understand where you're coming from because, you know, I grew up eating the good stuff. And, and like, I hope you understand that, you know, we, we are trying to invent a completely new category effectively. This is like the world's first low carb, high proteins and ramen. So it's not gonna be perfect, but here are all the things we're doing on the back end to make this better. And then like, I don't wanna say this like too publicly, but but basically like we, we have a plan where like once version two comes out, we want to really take care of like anyone who's ever complained before. Um, and I won't go too much into it. I don't want everyone to listen to this and be like, all right, now I'm just gonna submit like a complaint but um, we, we care a lot, again, about the community. We want to make sure that we can turn any potential detractors into evangelists. And so I'm really excited about V2 coming on down the pipeline. Um, and I hope, you know, there's, again, to the people out there who already love V1, I, I love you guys. It's, it's amazing. And for everyone else, just know we're here working on it. You're someone who is very transparent. Uh, you build in public and it's something that you uh, really believe in. What have those benefits been like uh, for building in public? It has been very interesting to say the least. I, people often ask me like, okay, what drives you as an individual? And I subscribe to this belief that like, basically I, I live because I want to acquire wisdom and then I want to share it. 
and I know there's a lot of other people in this world who follow, like Toby Lucke from Shopify, the CEO, has stated publicly that that's like a big mission of his. I've always been a teacher my entire life. I taught guitar in high school. I taught personal finance in college. Um, I taught a class on stocks and investments in college. And I've never really let go of that in my system. That's really important to me. And so as I've built, it's been like, well, how can I democratize this knowledge? Because there's people who have really helped me in the past and it's only right to kind of pay that forward. And so when I think about like even my Twitter, for example, where I just share these random learnings, people are always like, oh, how much time do you put into like crafting your content strategy? And like, do you have like a whole plan for this? And I'm like, no, I, I don't. I just kind of, whenever something comes to mind, I'll like tweet it. And it's been so cool because there's people who will DM me um, whether they're like potential hires, investors, like even for our fundraising round, I would say that a large number of people in the round had already read something that I had tweeted about before. And they said, hey, look, I really respect the way that you're kind of sharing these learnings, even if they're like mistakes. Um, it just shows me who you are basically as a person. And that, you know, investors are just looking for data points at the end of the day. Same thing with potential hires. We actually have someone we're speaking to right now who I hope one day can be a case study I'll talk to. But this guy is just so impressive. He emailed me. He said, hey, look, I've been following you, you know, for a long time. Listen to like some of your clubhouse talks, followed you on Twitter. Here's like more about me. Here's a Miro board I made analyzing your entire business where like I studied all your like customer comments and responses. And then like, here are a few projects that I have in mind, like a whole like five page Google doc. And I was so freaking impressed with this guy. And I was like, I'm so glad that I built publicly because otherwise people like him uh, wouldn't be able to discover me and and like proactively reach out like this. And so we're really looking to see if we can hire, bring this person on board. But um, I think it's just very exciting to see um, people who believe in the mission and the vision um, and can be bought in because of this idea of building in public. So you've only been live for a couple months now. What are you and K-Chan focusing on over the next year or so? The number one goal is to improve the product. And I know everyone says that, but you know, like Kaj and I both come from product management backgrounds. So this is something we're really used to, which is this idea of you've got to launch with a V1.0. You have a roadmap that you're planning. You have a backlog of tasks you got to get through for these like sprints. And then you basically use the sprints as a way of like breaking down your long-term goal into like achievable short time, uh, time periods, basically. So we run off these sprints. We have this V2.0 that we're working towards. And that's all that we care about. And well, that's not all that we care about, but that's like the top priority because we're, we already got trial samples back of that. We're super excited. It tastes so much better. Um, and we know that when you have that good product, everything else just kind of magically falls into place. I would say the second thing we're doing is we are continuing to build up our community. Um, you know, I've, I've spoken to a lot of growth experts at this point. I think our cap table, we have some of the best growth experts in the game. And a lot of them have just, you know, and this is very common knowledge at this point, that um, the growth and marketing world for the past few years was very data-driven, um, rightfully so. And truth is, is like Facebook algorithms now are so good that they take care of a lot of that for you. And it's funny how the marketing world has really reverted back to like storytelling and like creatives and and just like community at the end of the day, which you know, community, they believe in your product because they believe in your story, right? They believe in more than just this product, but they believe in like who you are as a brand, what you stand for. It represents what they stand for. So for me, like, I think even the next six to 12 months, it's how can we continue this storytelling, whether it's building in public, whether it's sharing more behind the scenes with our community, getting them to start talking amongst themselves. 
Um, I think that's going to be really important for this company and for any brand. And then the third thing is just taking care of the existing customers. Um, we have some customers, for example, there was uh, a mom who emailed us and said, hey, you know, I want to let you know that uh, my son was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when he was really, really young, and he loves ramen. And it was the saddest thing for him to give that up. And we found Emmy online. I gave him a box and I watched him open the package. And as he took his first bite, this huge grin came over his face. And she was like, I just wanted to email you and let you know about this. And it honestly was one of the happiest moments we've ever felt. Like we're not a diabetic company. At the end of the day, we want to be a delicious like food brand that happens to be healthy. But like, this is one of those like hair on fire customers that we really did care about because like my grandma's diabetic and like it, it is really important behind the, in the mission of this company. And you know, we emailed her and we were just like, this made our day. This is incredible. And like, what's your son's favorite flavor? We're going to ship him another box right now for free. And just like, please just like, let us know whenever you need more. And like, we can't do this with everyone, but this is an example of just like taking care of your customers. Um, you, and you have having no expectation whatsoever, right? It's just like, you just do it because it's the right thing to do. And I think that's obviously we need to be profitable of a business, but um, I personally love doing that stuff because, you know, if, if you're not going to like, do good in this world with your company, then like, why the hell are you doing it basically? So those are probably the three things that we're really thinking about over the next six to 12 months. Emmy's goal is to reinvent Asian American foods, you know, with added nutrition. Mm -hmm. Ramen noodles is, is just that first stop. Yeah. Where, what other categories are you, are you looking into in long-term? Yeah. It's, it's interesting because we, you know, we always tell people that instant ramen alone is such a huge category. Uh, it's like $46 billion now globally, where we could literally just keep expanding flavors and do like flavored drops. Um, and I think that could, I mean, it could be a, a billion dollar business just doing that. Um, I think for us, we want to analyze, or not analyze, but like, we want to look back to our childhood of like, what were our favorite childhood, like Asian American snacks, drinks, things that you know, like instinctively, like we think, hey, this could appeal to a, a broader American audience, but it just hasn't really been like reformulated with healthier attributes in mind. I don't want to reveal too much. You know, we have like a couple exciting ideas in mind. Um, but at the end of the day, like um, two important brand attributes are like we always say elevated and fun. Like we want to elevate um, what has existed before, but we want to make sure it's fun. Because me and Kei-chan, like, we are fun people. That's like, we, we want to have fun along the way. And, and so, you know, instant ramen is a fun food because it's like the first food you learn how to make. You can add any topping you want. People put like crumpled up hot Cheetos and like cheese and like some of the strangest things you could think of, but it's really fun for people. And so I think whatever next product we put out, it's going to have that Asian American, you know, the Asian American flavors that we know and we kind of grew up loving, but it's still going to have like the health attributes and it's going to be fun for you to eat. So I will leave it at that. I don't want to spoil too much. That's Kevin Lee, co-founder of Emmy. You can learn more about Emmy at emmyeats.com and follow Kevin on Twitter at Kevin Lee M-E. Thanks for listening to the show. I'm Thomas Schreiber, and this is the DTC Podcast.